Hi, my name is Jeff Pagano, and thanks for tuning into the Harpen on Rugby podcast. Harpen on Rugby is an unofficial fan site for Leinster and Ireland rugby, with write-ups every Monday after matches and regular coverage of the latest news and opinion via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course this pod. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts as well as a host of other platforms. Last week, I spoke to John Keenan of the Rugby Gods podcast, which features previews and reviews of Super Rugby Aotearoa. We chatted about how the tournament stood at the halfway stage, and since then, his Hurricanes defeated the team I had adopted, the Blues, in what seemed to amount to a battle for second spot on the table. Over the course of our chat, we discussed some other things, so what I decided to do was hold over some of the extra content and use it for this week's pod. There are a few topics he went over, like the different style of bonus point used in Super Rugby, how Jemison Gibson Park is perceived down in New Zealand, and also the potential for the return of Test Rugby down there. But he also had some questions for me. Apparently, it's an interview he likes to give every rugby fan he encounters online. So what I told him I'd do is have a look at them and give my answers in a separate pod. So without any further ado, here's a back and forward chat with a difference, kind of with myself, if you can get me. So here we go. The first question from John is uh, about the Pro 14 and Super Rugby. And so this is question one. Okay, we'll do it that way. Question one, part A, similarities and differences. Truth be told, apart from the fact that both involve rugby and multiple nations, the two competitions don't really have a whole lot in common. Well, maybe you could also add that one nation in particular tends to have more success than all the others. Otherwise, I for one am envious of Super Rugby's format above everything else. I don't necessarily mean the conference structure they had, but definitely the fact that the tournament was virtually played in its own dedicated block in the calendar. Compared to the prolonged stop-start nature of the European season, the short break in June for a few tests is nothing, and the coaches all have a much better opportunity to keep their squads together from start to finish. B. Super Rugby from an Irish Perspective Well, the running gag up here is that you can score 50 points in Super Rugby and still lose. There's loads of high-scoring matches, and this means us Europeans, while we'd still be entertained, would also hold up our noses a bit at the defensive frailties. We saw examples of this last weekend in Round 6 of Super Rugby Aotearoa, when there were loads of tries in the two matches, but so many of them came from malls after 5-meter lineouts, I couldn't help wonder if anyone bothered coaching their forwards on how to defend them. Seriously, though, for the most part, Super Rugby for me has always been a welcome addition to our viewing calendar, as only the South African times occasionally clash with ours, and there is always quality on show. Part C. The good, the bad, and the ugly. What could or should be done? To be honest, I'd be wary of being too harsh to criticize a competition that has covered such massive distances. Getting several top-level matches on in so many different continents week in, week out has been quite the achievement. Sure, when it comes to format, it was much easier to comprehend when it was a Super 10 or Super 12, but I haven't been as opposed to expansion as many have been over the years. The game needs to grow in places like Japan and Argentina, and the experiment was definitely worth trying, although it was a shame that room wasn't also made for the Pacific Islands. Personally, I think the future might be best served by some kind of regional structure, with the Pacific Islands and Japan in one grouping, Australia and New Zealand having their own comps at home like they do now, and South Africa there too if they haven't defected, with it all culminating in some kind of Champions League-style final series in one location at the end of it all. As for the Pro 14, well, that will always be a movable feast. Many fans complain about the addition of teams from South Africa and even Italy, but for me the reality is that we need to be ready for the possibility of more hopping on board down the road. One thing that I would call ugly, the length of time it takes to decide the champion. 
Going from the beginning of September all the way to mid-June is way, way too long in my opinion. Since we're on the topic of differences between the Pro 14 and Super Rugby, I might as well include this clip here from last week's interview with John Keenan. I asked him what he thought of the tri-bonus point system that has been in operation down there for the past few seasons. The losing bonus points and yeah. that kind of stuff, I'd be, I tend to be critical. Um, just on the, on, the, on the subject of bonus points, I just want to ask a, a sort of a sidebar kind of question because um, I'm interested in that point system that they have um, that they brought into Super Rugby. They had it in the top 14 for a long time, and I think it's a good one for rugby as a whole. Um, to it's a, it is it does make a big difference when you when you only award the bonus point for three tries more than the opposition, as opposed yeah. to just getting in. How, how do you think it's worked in, in Super Rugby so far? I think it's worked really well. I think it's it's a really good system. Um, I think people were a little bit against it. Maybe you know everybody's a little bit conservative. I think um, you know rule changes or team changes or whatever. But uh, I think it took about a year, maybe two years, to bid in to the Sansa competitions, and then I think nobody even thought about it again. If you know what I mean, they were like, "Yeah, this is definitely the right the right way of doing things." Just because, um, yeah, I mean, um, there's just so many. There's so many. There's so much potential for a team to you know maybe get that close loss but also spoil the bonus point you know the bonus point the try bonus for, for another team so maybe they don't get a competition point but they deny the hurricanes or the crusaders or whatever a five point you know game so yeah i, I think um, everybody's pretty pretty on on board with that brilliant yeah no because uh up here in europe um the way our season is structured is it's 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 a real bugbear of mine because um like every week there's a different competition like you'd have yeah. the pro 14 one week you'd have europe the next then you have the six nations window yeah and um so so the coach he's not just coaching for the match that day he's thinking of games that are three or four weeks down the line so the that bonus point system suits the coaches in Europe because it means go out there, get your four tries, build up a lead, and then you can just keep it in the back pocket and bring it home. But I like for from a rugby sense, from a rugby standpoint, I like the possibility that you can lose it uh, if you don't watch yourselves in the last. You can lose a bonus point in the last few minutes if you if you don't watch um, what the other team's doing. So I'm hoping. Exactly. Question two: The professional rugby world as Eastern as and Western hemispheres. Part A, the South African and Argentinian problem slash opportunity. Time zones, a broadcaster's best friend, seven, eight nations, 20, 20, 45, South Africa and Argentina both playing in Europe. Here's my answer. Since both sides of the world seem willing to have South Africa and Argentina on board, this is a decision for both the SARU and UAR to make. And of course, finances will play a big part in this decision. With CVC gradually taking control of European rugby, they could make South African franchises an offer they can't refuse. If the Jaguares can also move here, that's well and good. But I wonder if time zone may be an issue for them to also look north, and with Major League Rugby growing slowly but surely, that could be a better fit. As for changing the Six Nations, well, I've always been game for that, although it was more with a view to creating a pathway for Tier 2 nations in Europe, like Georgia, to move up if their talent base was worthy of it. One major factor with any type of change in these parts is the fans. Rugby union as a sport hasn't been known for accepting change, but particularly in this tournament. In over a hundred years, it has lurched from four to five to six nations, with each change done only reluctantly. If we were to break free of the shackles of both format and location on the calendar, we could make some changes that better suited the game as a whole. Who knows? Maybe if this proposed tournament at the end of the year with Japan and Fiji supposedly joining the Six Nations for two pools of four could show fans and broadcasters alike that a few tweaks here and there wouldn't be the end of the world for rugby's greatest championship.
Part B. Asia-Pacific Rugby. Where does Japan fit in? Well, by its very name, it's clear that the principal role of world rugby is to promote the game around the globe. And there's no doubt that the two biggest markets they need to conquer are Japan and the USA. As an Irish fan, I'm torn. If those nations reach their full potential, it could make it even more difficult for us to crack the Final Four of a Rugby World Cup. But it's hard to deny that it would be better for rugby overall. I actually liked the concept of a world league, and the bulk of the considerable resistance to it seemed to be based purely on the notion that change is bad. One thing is for sure, even if change were bad, accepting just 10 nations to the world's biggest annual tournaments forevermore would be worse. Now for club level, replacing Super Rugby. Do you have a competition for Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and the Japanese Top League? Well, I've already kind of answered that. I think a Champions League-style format with everyone playing regionally first and then going into a finals competition held in a different place, different country even each year, would be the best way to go. Now, about the national level, how do you replace the rugby championship if South Africa and Argentina leave? In this question, John proposes you have a competition with Australia, New Zealand, a combined Pacific Island 15, and Japan. Here's my answer. Personally, I'm not crazy about lumping the Pacific Islands together for an annual tournament. By all means, find room in the calendar for them to come together for a Lions-style tour every now and again. But I reckon their national identity should be respected every bit as much as those like Wales and Scotland have been. Maybe allow the top two from the Pacific Nations Cup to join the All Blacks and Wallabies in the Rugby Championship each year. I don't know, something like that. Okay, now we're on to question three. And this deals with, well, the first part of this deals with Irish rugby. Part one. The Pro 14 Franchises As much as I feel the overall format of European rugby makes no sense and needs a complete overhaul, I have to admit that if any one union has managed to make it work since the game went pro, it has been the IRFU. It hasn't all been plain sailing, and some of the mechanisms they put in place haven't quite panned out, but overall the provinces serving as branches of the union rather than separate club entities has worked extremely well, and much of the success enjoyed on these shores in that time can be traced back to this. Part 2 State of the National Club level, its future. Unfortunately, the Irish club game hasn't been able to stay in touch with the provincial level. A lot of this is down to the provinces wanting to have more control on the pitch, and thus they rely more on their own A-team for their fringe players to get game time, rather than the clubs. Much has been suggested over the years as a means to fix this, and much has been tried, yet the problems still remain. Personally, I believe a new semi-professional level needs to be created between the clubs and the provinces. The only problem would be deciding which clubs get to make the jump. That's not as simple as going by results on the pitch because I reckon each province should be guaranteed at least two clubs in the competition to make it productive. So it would take a lot of consultation, but hopefully a solution can be found quickly because I really don't think the status quo is cutting it. Next part, the national team, my thoughts. Well, despite our disappointment at yet another World Cup in 2019, I really don't think I would change that much about the national setup. If I got my way and there was a global synchronized calendar that made some sense, then perhaps we could loosen some restrictions and allow players to move abroad without losing their chance to wear the green jersey. For me, test selection is always best made on form, and the bigger the pool of players to choose from, the better it is for the team. That said, the talent being fed up to senior level seems to be getting better with each passing year, so long may that continue. Now, the next question is about New Zealand rugby. Watching Super Rugby Aotearoa as I have for the past few weeks, I'm not too sure you guys have much to worry about. There's plenty of talent in all five franchises, a decent setup on the coaching front, you'll be fine. 
As for the national team, well, I hate to say it. Well, maybe I don't, but maybe it's always better for the game of rugby when the All Blacks lose a game or two. That doesn't mean I want them to stop their strive for excellence, though, and that is something that can only be admired. And the next part is on the subject of revenue, contracts, partnerships, and sabbaticals for New Zealand players. Well, when it comes to retaining talent, if Ireland's depth is good, New Zealand's is by far the best, and you can hardly blame quality players who know they have three or four rivals ahead of them in the pecking order to want to ply their trade abroad, especially when Europe is offering so much for them to do so. Sabbaticals are definitely necessary for players at the top of the game because of the nature of the world calendar. Perhaps if that changed, they wouldn't be needed. Now on to question five, and the first part of this is called the spine, and it's to do with the positions 2, 8, 9, 10, and 15. Is this still relevant? Well, this question gives me a perfect opportunity to play a clip from an Ask Me Anything done by Brent Pope before Ireland played Wales in the Six Nations all the way back in 2013. Maybe I'm blowing my own trumpet here, but hey, someone's got to do it. So here's the clip. Here's a great question from Harpen on Rugby. Actually, it's one of the, one of the best questions I've had in a long time. Um, are the traditional roles of positions 6, 7 and 8 going to disappear from the international game altogether one day? I think it's a great question. It's a great question for me because in my career I played in all three uh, positions. Started off as an open side, ended up as a number 8 and also played number 6. And I think, yeah, especially this week if you look at two teams and answer some of the other questions. If you look at the two teams, what have we got? You know, we've got Warburton and out and out seven. You've got Falatau. You know, yes, he's an eight, but he could be a seven as well. And you've got, uh, I know, Tuberick's on the bench, but he could come on. So you could have, Wales could finish the match with two open siders, we would see it, uh, and, a, and a number six or number eight. The same a bit in Ireland. You know, I don't think Sean O'Brien, you know, is an out and out seven. Uh, Peter Armani uh, is is probably not an out and out seven as well, and his lip is specialist number eight. So I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think those roles have started to disappear, and I think if you looked at the only real traditional number sevens as far as that's concerned, and the funny thing is about Richie McCaw actually ended up playing eight last year in some of the matches, if you remember, for uh, for the All Blacks. So they switch around now. I think that's really, it's a skill-level game now, so I don't think they're so defined. I think that, uh, I think that when the Lions actually travel out, the, the Irish and British Lions travel out to Australia, they'll probably look to take a couple of specialist open-siders, but I think it's a great point because I think they will disappear, and I think we're even seeing that now. We're seeing sixes merging into sevens, eights merging into sevens. As you can see, even back then, the traditional roles for positions on the rugby pitch were changing, and it wasn't just along the back row either. Hookers and locks have been known to play 6, 7 or 8. 9s, 12s and 15s have all been called on to play 10 in big matches. As coaching gets more and more specialised with each passing season, having a spine of undroppable players simply won't cut it anymore at the highest level. Adaptability is arguably the most important aspect of any coaching philosophy going into a new season. Next part. Where do you see the game going? Well, a lot depends on how these post-COVID rule changes pan out. With different competitions trying out different rules, not to mention a lot still to be learned in the area of safety and arguably the world's most contact-heavy team sport, it would take at least a year of test rugby to find the right levels. I know that sounds like a cop-out answer, but I assure you, in these uncertain times, it is at least an honest one. And now to the last question about influential positions and strategy. Breakdown dominance has always been a key for me. I'm something of a defensive nerd who enjoys a successful 30-phase stand on my own team's try line every bit as much as the score down the other end. So long as the laws can allow for a decent contest after the tackle, I'll be happy with the progression of the game. 
I suppose that makes seven the most influential position for me, but like I said earlier, roles aren't specific to certain positions, and we've seen many other ones, like hookers and centers, dominate the tackle area over the years. Okay, well, that's it for me. Um, I hope, hope those answers were okay for you, John. Just let me know, and um, I'm happy to share them with my listeners. Um, so now I'm going to hand you back over to John Keenan. He's got another couple of questions to answer on um, Jemison Gibson Park and the return to test rugby for the All Blacks. So take it away, John. And uh, since we're talking about Hurricane Nines, uh, what, what was your brief on uh, Jemison Gibson Park before he left? You, you got about a dozen or so games out of him. Yeah, um, he's more of a blues man, am I, yeah. am I right? Yeah. He's more of an Auckland and blues man. Like, yeah, I think we, we did play him, or yeah, we, we had him in and around the squad. Um, I'm assuming he was probably backing up Perinara there yeah. for a while. Right? Yeah, he backed him up when they won. He backed him up in the final yeah. against the Lions. Oh, was, was he even in the 23 yeah. bit? yeah. Wow, yeah, because at that time we had Titoiro uh, Tahiri Arangi as well, who's, you know, like, called Triple T. Um, Tahiri Arangi has, like, become an All Black now as well, kind mm. of moved on to Chiefs. Um, so I guess in my mind, I always think that um, Oteri Black and Tahiri Arangi were the kind of backup 9-10 to um, Perinara and Bowdoin Barrett. Mm-hmm. But I believe, actually, you're right. Um, in terms of that final, we had um, James Marshall and Gibson Park uh, for more experience, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of backing up that 9, 10, 15. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a good player. Um, mm-hmm. I would just say, uh, what would I say? I mean, I would, he was very good for Auckland. He's very scrappy, good, very good competitor for Auckland at the NPC level. Um, certainly deserved Super Rugby contracts. Um, never really, never really bedded himself in anywhere too much, if you know what I mean. Like, he was sort of like a squad, squad nine uh, playing up for the Blues. Uh, probably behind Petty Wepu, uh, a fair bit up there, and then obviously a squad nine back down in Hurricanes country as well. You know, with Piranara, it's a pretty tough gig. Or like, you know, like I don't, I don't know where at that time. You know, there's a lot of good halfbacks around. So mm. you know, you, you have a look at a guy like Willie Hines. You know, getting into the English team like over the last couple of years. I mean, that guy uh, was in and around the Crusaders outfit like ten years ago. It's like. Uh, very much the name is very familiar and you remember him from a few games, but he was very much a squad player, if you know what yeah, I mean. And, yeah. uh, you know, five, ten years down the line, you're like, oh, okay, playing for, playing for England. Well, it's a common theme. I mean, uh, players um, who, who you know, the depth I- down in New Zealand is so deep that, like, if you if you want to have a test career, and no matter how quality a player you are, you, you look up, you look ahead of you, and there's my five, six people established yeah. or other people coming through. And you look ahead, and you're just like, listen, I, I could stay here my whole career, and uh, however good I am, I'm not going to get near, you know, I'm not going to get any yeah. test rugby. So the the, the call of uh, Europe is always going to be, I suppose, um, yeah. uh, it's going to be strong I, I, for 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 gibson park um when he arrived here he we, we were in the midst in the throes of the joe schmidt era uh, there was a mm-hmm. lot of box kicking um and it wasn't like for for Joe Schmidt teams, the box kicking wasn't a sense of okay, this is we're, we're we've nothing else to do here. Um, let's just put it up in the air. It wasn't a last resort. It was a it was a play designed to get the ball back, and we were yeah. we were taking it. It was taken really seriously. And I think he he had to adjust his game. I think it took him a while to adjust. Yeah. But I think where he's where he's thrived here, where he's really shown his talent is is with European defenses so strong. When you got a goal line stand, when you're going through 20, 25 phases on a team's goal line, he's the guy to come in and pick that lock, find the missed pass, and uh, he's done really well here. And he's qualified for Ireland now. Again, he's found himself with a lot of quality 
scrum halves ahead of him. But um, I think he could he could he could make a could make a shout for that Ireland squad. I could I could imagine James Sinkinson Park being a good like squad halfback for yeah. Ireland. Like I yeah I, I don't think you would start him in too many big games. You probably wouldn't even want him on the bench. Mm. Uh, but you know yeah if you're playing Scotland or Italy or something like that, you want some rotation of like Connemari etc. Then you know he's a good. I, I would imagine he'd be a good quality shout. Yeah. Um, I I can't imagine his box. I mean I'm just trying to. To think of him like yeah he must have, it must have been tough for him um, in terms of having to fit in with uh, you know like a high box kicking sort of um, play playbook if you will uh, I, I don't yeah I feel like he would have had to have reinvented himself quite a lot or since I've been following or seen him play because I, I feel like in New Zealand yeah they, they, he wasn't used in that kind of way too much mm. but yeah good luck to him and uh, what what do you think is going to happen with test rugby down there do you think uh is there is there any movement on on scheduling anything it's hard that's harder to do obviously you've gone between countries and that but uh, what do you think is going to happen yeah it seems unfortunately at the moment um october november seems to be the time uh and october november is going to be when um the itm cup or new zealand's national provincial competition is in full swing but it seems like new zealand rugby and the aiu the australian rugby they both seem to be agreeing or tentatively agreeing to sort of October, November time, which is a bit sad because New Zealand's essentially going to have a 12-week competition there, a domestic provincial competition there, which is a really great competition. And I recommend yourself and, you know, any other, you know, Irish rugby fans, uh, European rugby fans, go check that out. And, yeah. And, you know, oh, they show it. They show it on Sky Sports here. It, is, it, does, it would be on on Saturday mornings throughout September and October. It's, it's, a, re- it's a really good shout. Um, yeah. It's a really good competition. And, um, you know, and, and follow the Ranford Shield inside of that as well. There's a lot of history there. But um, unfortunately, it, it looked like the All Blacks were going to be released to play a full, you know, domestic season, a full provincial season or, you know, competition. But now it seems like Australia and New Zealand have gotten together to play somewhere like three or maybe four tests, like two in each country uh, in October with a break and then November, if you know what I mean. That seems, that seems the likely play. Um, also, there's going to be a North Island, South Island uh, played at the end of, uh, that's, that's definitely happening. Uh, which we played at the end of um, Super Rugby Aotearoa. Um, and again, Australia started their competition later than New Zealand, mm. and they've also included semi-finals and finals. So there really is just no time for any kind of crossover between Australia and New Zealand in August. The earliest time it can happen is possibly September, but it, it's mm. seeming likely October, November, maybe two tests in New Zealand, two tests in Australia, something like that. Yeah. And maybe something in December as well. But, um, you know, I don't really feel like Argentina and or South Africa are just there politically or, you know, like uh, coronavirus applies. And I would be amazed if any Northern Hemisphere teams come down to New Zealand and or Australia in December. I just can't really see it. So, yeah, I I think probably the best we can really hope for in terms of Southern Hemisphere um, is probably uh, Australia-New Zealand test. It'll be like a two-test series, you know, like back-to-back weekends in New Zealand, mm. probably like a three, four-week break and back-to-back tests in Australia, something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, from what I, from what I've seen, I mean, the only thing I can say about that is, from what I've seen from uh, Super Rugby Aotearoa so far, is that Ian Foster must be absolutely chomping at the bit to get these <laughs> players into black jerseys. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, you, I mean, I don't really want to uh, relitigate it or like bring it up too much, um, but you know, I've, I've put it to bed uh, the Rugby World Cup of, uh, of last year. Mm. But um, you know, it's uh, it's all good. Congratulations, South Africa, and definitely well done, England in the semi final. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, geez, the only way you get over things like that is by playing more. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, 
you, you, you got some solace by playing, you know, the bronze final, um, you know, getting getting the brown medal, if you will, um, the third place medal uh, against Wales and obviously rubbing that in Warren Gatlin's face as well uh, before coming back home. But uh, it was probably not enough, I don't think, for, for many of those players. They, they, they do need to get back on the horse and they do some top quality teams, if you know what I mean. Mm. And... Uh, the longer there's no international rugby, the longer that South Africa stays nominally number one in the world. So, again, it's another bit of a slap in the face to, yeah. you know, a team that um, we actually drew with and beat last year, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. there's, there's a lot of sting there. There's definitely a lot of a lot of need to, to get back on it at test level. And had tip to Ireland. Um, I would actually say this, um, I'm not sure if you've heard it before, but my theory is um, you actually, uh, you, you essentially, you psychologically drained us uh, with that quarterfinal. Because um, between the World Cups of 15 and 19, uh, by having essentially a winning record against us, we played three times, you won twice. Mm. Uh, we took that quarterfinal too seriously. I, uh, and I, I mean that with all respect, or all due mm. respect, but we really couldn't get the motivation back up for an England team that hadn't beaten us since, I believe it was 2012. And it was a number of games, like when you're getting you know, to that 2019 final. So we were sort of emotionally spent, I think, from really putting on a bit of a clinic in that quarterfinal. And we definitely had one eye towards, you know, what was happening the, the following week in terms of, you know, would it be Wales? Would it be South Africa? We were off the pace and we got punished and like, well done England. But we just didn't really, we were complacent. We just didn't have the true motivation to beat that English team. And England came with everything and were great. So, um, you know, I, I actually would say, you know, uh, sorry, uh, Ireland were kind of instrumental in bringing the All Blacks down there. Uh, you know, if, if the All Blacks had had, say, Japan in that quarterfinal, yeah. I mean, there would, have been, there would have been rest and rotation. There would have been almost a week off, if you know what I mean. Again, no yeah. disrespect. But there, would, there, just, there just would have been a, a proper legitimate level of, like, we're going to handle Japan nicely, politely in their country, and then we're going to move on to a semifinal and build it up. With that quarterfinal against Ireland, it was just it was unacceptable that we lost that quarter or could potentially lose that quarterfinal. Mm. That's not happening. Like, but you know, you go back over the four years between World Cups, had a losing record to you guys. So yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in there that just really they 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 they, they emptied the gas tank too much on Ireland. That's, well, that's that was my thought. Well, from the Irish point of view, it's like uh, the, the, just getting to the semifinals is a holy grail for us. So we, we, we were just thinking uh, we were just thinking more of the disappointment. We've had so many quarterfinal disappointments over the years. It's just been uh, it was just kind of just kind of heartbreaking. I mean, obviously, it was great to finally get the victories over the All Blacks in the interim, and uh, we just we hit our we hit our high point in 2018 um, for that second win. I think we were I think that game we, we just we did a podcast last week where we looked, reviewed that game um, in 2018 where I think that was probably possibly one of the best games Ireland ever played uh, under Joe Schmidt. High quality game. Yeah and um, but it was just it was just a shame the World Cup wasn't that year but that's how the game <laughs> shakes down you know um, I think I think we were found out I think like you say you say New Zealand put a lot of effort into beating us that day um, and but I think I think we just kind of we, we, we played so well we set ourselves up as a target to hit and I don't think we I don't it's not so much that we we didn't change our game. I don't think we had we had the depth to be able to change our game too much to be able to be ready for what was going to be come at us next. It just it just all came, came down for us in Japan. But uh, anyway, very surprising ball play though. I mean, like mm. you were so so good against Scotland in the first game. Yeah, like I just, it was it was unfathomable to me from from a distance from Irish record. 
And we were, we were good against How Japan for 20 this? minutes. We were good against yeah. Japan for 20 minutes. We were on top. Everything was going well. It was just, there was one line out. I just remember there was one line out around the halfway line, I think it was, that uh, didn't go our way. And Japan got the momentum from there. And it's just, everything just began to open. But anyway, talk yeah. about, talk about relitigating. Um, <laughs> but maybe, maybe yeah. we'll put that on the back burner for now. That's it for this week. Thanks for sticking with us right to the end. Later in the week on the site, we have upcoming rugby on Irish TV this Thursday. And our featured match of the weekend is Blues versus Chiefs. Check out our preview on Friday and write up on Monday. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Slán.